Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1950 film Sunset Boulevard. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Thanks. Uh, Barrett, I just uh, just told you off air when you jumped on the uh, jumped on the call that this was another uh, home run of a film. Um, and I have to say, I was a little. This was one that when we fired it up, I was a little. Uh, I wasn't excited about. I think because this is a movie that has made elements of this movie has have made their way into popular culture where even if you haven't seen it like i'm aware of i didn't know the name norma desmond but i'm aware of like that character um mm-hmm. I'd likes to point out that this is a a type of performance that is often uh caricatured by comedians like Kristen wig does a character like this when she was on snl and it's like okay so so i was thinking oh it's gonna be a lot of that i don't know that i'm I don't know that this is going to be for me. Uh, and then you get the first shot of this movie and it's this dead body in a swimming pool talking to you. It's a gorgeous shot. This dead body in a swimming pool talking to you. Uh, and you have this voiceover and I was like, Oh, this is something entirely different. And I loved every frame of this, uh, every frame of this film. So I'm excited to talk with you about it. Um, let's just start with what is your history with, with sunset Boulevard? I think the, the most important element of my history with the, with the film would be uh, the first year that I taught a film theory, theory and interpretation course uh, back in 2007. And I was trying to think of, you know, what's a good film to kind of start the course? And so I started with Sunset Boulevard uh, just for a couple of reasons. One is because it's obviously a film about, about film, uh, specifically a film about Hollywood film. And because I think the film can be seen as occupying a number of different genres. So it's really helpful to be able, and and then there's a number of different elements of the film we talk about. You've already said something about the cinematography, for example, uh, script performance. So it's kind of, to me, it's kind of a film that's got it all. So that's been my, my history with it. So I want to, let's, let's jump into genre because I was, as I was going through, I was writing all the different kinds of stories this is the different kinds of films this is so so when you think about the different genres that that wilder and company are playing with uh what what jumps out at you well i guess i would start where you just started sam and that is with with the voiceover and kind of the film noir element you know we've seen other other films noir and um narration doesn't define film noir but it's often an element of it and so that, um, the cinematographic style, the role, Norma, Norma Desmond is almost a kind of femme fatale, obviously, and the, and the protagonist, William Holden, are torn between the two women. So it's got a film noir element to it. Um, it's, but it's also got, um, it's a black comedy. I mean, it's, it's, it reminds me, you know, it takes us back maybe to Dr. Strangelove or The Lobster. Uh, it's got those elements of humor, but it's satirical and, uh, and a little bit bitter. Um, it's it's a romance. Um, you have uh, Holden being attracted to the Nancy Olsen character, um, and kind of and the issues of uh, a potential love affair there. Um, but then it's also got elements to the horror film. I mean, Eric von Stroheim, you know, playing that playing that organ with that uh, camera angle, and just his whole his whole almost sinister butler character lurking in the shadows. Um, so I think it's, I think it's got all those genres going on in addition to the, I think the subgenre of the Hollywood film about the Hollywood film. And I'll add one more genre onto it because again, this movie starts with a dead body. It's a murder mystery. Like, like you see it, you see that somebody's died and, 
by the end of this story, we're going to figure out why. So it's not, it's not a murder mystery. Will we typically think of like our lead character as a detective solving it, but we're sort of put in that position of from the very beginning, we have the dead body and then we go back and it's like, okay, at some point this dead body is going to appear uh, in, in our, in our forward moving movie. And, to an to to an extent, we are solving the mystery of how we started. So I, I and and I'm I will say I'm not a fan of of murder mysteries, but this is the I loved this version of it where it's like it's not on me to try to solve this before somebody else is going to solve it. But instead, it was just like we see the stakes right away. We see the stakes is this is uh, somebody's life is now is now ended, and the person whose life is ended is the person whose eyes we're looking through as we tell this story. Because that's one of the things... I listened to a really great podcast episode. I've talked about Unspooled on here before. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Shear and Amy Nicholson watching their way through the AFI list. And I listened to their Sunset Boulevard um, podcast. And, and Amy Nicholson pointed out, you know, the interesting thing is because this is through the Joe Gillis character, like we sort of accept some of the things that he says, but then she likes to, she says, you know, it's also interesting to pull back to say how, how subjective of a read should we have from that voiceover? You know, should we buy his take on what the house is like, what the, you know, he talks about how the house smells and all these types of things. And, and even the things that he, that we're seeing are those projections of his take on things or is, or is that the reality of it? And that was something I hadn't even thought about as I was watching it. I just accepted him. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's what in literary studies we call the unreliable narrator. Uh, and you have to realize exactly you're seeing things through his or, or her eyes. Um, I want to pick up on a couple things you, you just said, Sam, first of all, the voiceover um, to go back to that. This is the first film I am aware of that has a dead narrator. Um, it's been it's been duplicated a couple of times. You have probably most recently American Beauty of uh, Kevin Spacey is dead or The Lovely Bones, although The Lovely Bones kind of that reflects the, the novel, uh, which has a dead narrator. Or you could even say it's a subcategory of the surprise narrator, like in uh, The End of the Usual Suspects. And you realize that the narrator is you didn't realize who the narrator actually was. But the other thing I want to say is. Um, this is also an example of a film that actually was improved by response to um, uh, screenings with audiences, and you're aware of this. But you know, the original opening was a morgue, uh, and people started the dead bodies uh, sat up and started talking about how they came to be dead, and that's where the William Holden narration originally appeared. Um, and it was shown three times in previews, and audiences uh, laughed hysterically. Um, and, and there's, there's one story of a wilder standing there, sitting there on the steps with his head in his hands as the audience came out thinking, you know, this is awful if the film's a big flop. So it was because of that audience response that they came up with this, with this new opening, which is one of the great openings of any Hollywood film. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that, um, the, sh the angle of the shot, um, they didn't actually, they, they actually didn't have a camera that could shoot underwater. So what they did was they put a mirror on the bottom of the pool and the camera is above. And so you're seeing a Holden in the reflection. But the other issue is the water had to be quite cold in order to reduce distortion. So it's about a 40 degree water, a 40 degree pool that he's floating in. And I just love this because Wilder is often, you could either say faulted or praised as a director more interested in the script than images. And yet I think Sunset Boulevard is 
really striking in terms of its images of cinematography. In fact, it was nominated for uh, an Academy Award for cinematography. And one more footnote, the cinematographer John Seitz also was a cinematographer for three Preston Surges films, including Sullivan's Travels. So it's a little connection to our other watching. Um, one of the big things, I mean, as a movie about Hollywood and a movie about movie making and, and, and you know, film, even in it, I mean, it is a piece of film history because this is a 70-year-old movie, but it's also about film history before it. Um, one of the things that, that interested me as I was watching this and I realized I didn't know as much about was sort of like, what was the state of Hollywood in 1950? Because I mean, uh, as I was reading about this after watching it, there was a lot of talk about sort of how the in, how, how Hollywood was changing a lot at that time. Um, and so, so, I mean, I think situating this movie at, you basically in, you know, in the, the contemporary time of 1950, I think knowing a little bit about, you know, what did the old, at the time, old Hollywood stars of the silent age, what did they mean? What was happening in Hollywood? Things like that. Can you, can you fill in any of those gaps? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things going on. I think it was, uh, and I think it was in 1948 that the antitrust legislation broke up the Hollywood system of vertical integration. So the studios no longer could control uh, production, distribution, and exhibition. So that was kind of the first thing. So that, that's, that's how the studios are beginning to kind of lose control over those elements. Um, and then the second thing is happening, it's just starting to happen, but it is happening, is television is on the rise and, and Hollywood is gonna have to begin to find ways to compete with television. That's where widescreen and all kinds of color technology are starting to be, to be used. So I think those are kind of the two, the two key things that uh, is beginning to kind of threaten the, um, the vitality or the dominance of Hollywood. So one of the things in terms of thinking about this as a movie about Hollywood um, and, and thinking about Billy Wilder, because the last time, this is our second Billy Wilder movie, correct? Uh, yes. He also made Some Like It Hot. And when we talked about Some Like It Hot, um, one of the things that we talked about was how it's full of both on and off the screen. It's full of people trying on different identities. There's all this layers, these layers in, um, in Some Like It Hot, where you have Marilyn Monroe playing another character with a name and Marilyn Monroe herself has changed her name and, uh, and put on this character. We talked about that with all, you know, that this layered throughout this. Um, and what's interesting is this movie has the opposite, which is there are so many things that are playing themselves or playing mm -hmm. versions of themselves. So I'm just going to go through what is a rather long list of, yeah. of Hollywood playing itself here. So some of the obvious ones, uh, Gloria Swanson playing Norma Desmond is playing, uh, it's, she's definitely not Norma Desmond. Right. I mean, her, it, there, there are elements where you could say, oh, there's there's parallels. But I mean, she her career and her life post uh, talking films is not the same as Norma Desmond's. But she is playing uh, a alternate history version of, of mm -hmm. someone like herself. Uh, the most interesting one, and we can come back to him, is Eric von Stroheim. Uh, I didn't know who he was when I watched this and I was. I was blown away by the performance and by a couple of the plot turns. And then to learn that some of those plot turns were real, like my head exploded. So we'll yes. come back to him. 
Um, so, but he's playing a character very much like himself in, in certain elements. Um, and then you have people literally playing themselves. So you have Cecil B. DeMille playing himself, which I did not realize. Um, <laughs> you have Hedda Hopper uh, and Sidney Skolsky, who are both sort of Hollywood gossip column people who play themselves in it. Um, you have the waxworks of Buster Keaton, Anna Q. Nilsson, and H.B. Warner. Uh, Buster Keaton's the only one I recognize, but I was like, hey, that's Buster Keaton. <laughs> and they don't even have lines, I think. They're just there playing bridge with her. One line. One line. One line. <laughs> But then there are other ways where Hollywood is playing itself. And these are things that, that, that are really interesting. The fact that Paramount Studios plays itself, that they actually film. Uh, and, and I didn't realize how uh, rare that was to have to be able to film the studio in that way. So Paramount Studios is playing itself. The film Queen Kelly, which was made by Gloria Swanson and Eric Von Stroheim, is in the movie as a movie they made, which is, is amazing. And then... When they're on the set with DeMille, he is actually filming, I think, his third to last, second to last film, Samson and Delilah. So that movie is playing itself as well. There's probably more, uh, but it was, but I was just, as I was reading about it, I realized how rich this film would be if you, if I knew those things. Like, I didn't know who Hedda, I knew who Hedda Hopper was, but I didn't know what she looked like. I didn't realize, like, oh, that's actually that's not somebody playing a head hopper character. That's actually just her in the movie. Right. And that kind of, that, that sort of blew me away. Yeah. It, it, and it, it gets even, it gets even richer, Sam, in, in, in even deeper levels. So for example, the, the, uh, the fact that the Samson and Delilah, they're, they're on the set of Samson and Delilah. N Nancy Olson was actually considered for the part of Delilah, which would have been terrible miscasting. Uh, and, and the other one I really love, this is a real geeky one is that when, um, when uh, Gillis and uh, I forget, I forget Beck, uh, Betty. When they're when they're uh, walking on the on the back of the uh, on the lot on the back lot that, that night, the soundtrack is playing a variation on a theme from a Paramount newsreel called "Eyes and Ears of the World." Really? So like, yes. I mean, so that's like I mean that is so deeply insider stuff that I mean I only I just happened to read about that somewhere. Uh, but but yeah, so that that so what what to me is really interesting about this film is that I think you can enjoy it and appreciate it and not know any of the stuff you just said. Mm -hmm. um, to me, the, okay, here's an analogy. I'm thinking about watching Warner Brothers cartoons as a kid, and you know, there's a number of those. There's there's one there's one where they have a, a various kind of various gangster characters from 1930s Warner Brothers films. And you know, I'm a kid. I don't know who any of these people are. I don't. I don't get any of the references. But I think the cartoon is fantastic. Um, the Muppets work that way too, right? You've got you've got kind of the level at which kids enjoy Muppets, and you've got the level at which adults enjoy Muppets. Um, and that's to me one of the reasons why this film works. You don't have to know any of that stuff to get it. But once you know that stuff, you can see really how um, how complex the film is in the way that Wilder's engaging Hollywood. Absolutely. It's, inter it's interesting you say that. I've done a lot of uh, parody work in my life where we've made videos and things like in songs where we're doing parody. And one of the questions that I always get asked when we're parodying something, there's usually somebody who's nervous is like, well, are students going to get that this is a parody of this or that? And it's exactly what you just said, which is if we do it right, it won't matter. If we do it right, it'll just look like, wow, that was an interesting execution of an idea. And if they do know what it is, then it's 
you get this other level of like, wow, they took this thing and did it as this other thing. So uh, that, uh, absolutely right. I think, and, and I, and like I said, I didn't know almost any of this as I was watching it. And then afterwards it made me want to go dive in. Now, my question is, and, and you may not know this, but in 1950, if you were a, let's say, let's say a 35 year old movie viewer, um, how much of this stuff would you have caught? I mean, you, you maybe would be aware of who Gloria Swanson is. Yeah, probably not a lot. I mean, because you're talking about actresses and actors that hadn't been around since you were 10 years old. And I don't know, another thing I don't know, Sam, is I don't know how many of the old silent films are even being shown. Mm -hmm. You know, no DVD, there's no no videotape. I don't know if there were, you know, I, I, I suspect a lot of these stars were simply gone. I mean, so I think that element of this, the way that Norma Desmond is depicted as having been forgotten, um, I think that's that's quite realistic. I, I I think the I think that's really what the I think that's really the way it it happened. So I think these were people who were largely out of out of the public consciousness. So yeah, if you're going to this film as a 35 year old, you're probably no much more different in 1950 than going to it as a 35 year old today. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so 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 there's a degree to which this is really kind of insidery stuff for for people probably in the industry and people who have a a history in the industry. Now, I heard an interesting story, um, and Amy Nicholson told this story um, that one of the uh, the origins for this for Billy Wilder was that he was at a party and there was an old guy in the corner that people were kind of. Um, he was he was he was a little drunk and people were kind of annoyed by him and 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 you know he just they were just kind of not paying any attention to him and uh Wilder asked who it was and somebody said oh that's just DW Griffith and he was like what <laughs> and so 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 that was his inspiration for saying well what if we made a story about this person who couldn't have been bigger and then sort of disappeared and like what must what might that person's life be like? And so that was that was some of the uh, some of the origins for uh, for starting to to make this this film. Oh, that's, a, that's that's an origin story I hadn't heard. That's really great to know. So I, I hope it's true. Yeah, yeah. I, again, it's just a story I heard on a podcast. But. I've heard other origin stories that I that I uh, that I have doubts about, even though they're great stories. So, for example, I heard a story that. When Wilder was trying to figure out who to cast as Norma Desmond, one of the old silent stars he considered was Pola Negri. And supposedly, in this story, he calls her up on the telephone, and her Polish accent is so thick he can't understand her, and so he passes her over. Now, first of all, that's ironic, because Wilder himself was uh, Austrian, so he spoke English with an accent. But then I did a little bit of research on Pola Negri's career, and she had she had a decent career in talkies. So... Um, I love that story, but I think it might, I think it might be apocryphal. Well, since you brought that up, I want to jump down to another, another thing I have in my notes, which is this movie has a lot of casting. What ifs to it? There's, there was a lot of, Oh, we considered this, we brought it to this person. So, um, one of the interesting pairings that they were playing with originally was, uh, in the place of Gloria Swanson and William Holden was, was Mae West and Marlon Brando. Um, yeah. And then that, I, I think the idea was they were really leaning more into the, the comedy of it um, uh, with, uh, with Mae West. Um, but you also would have the very different uh, performance styles uh, when you're thinking about sort of, 
you know, older and newer Hollywood, um, thinking about the two of those would, uh, what do you think a, a Mae West Marlon Brando version of this movie would be like? It would have been totally wrong. Um, you know, Mae West turned it down for a couple reasons. First of all, she did not want to play a has-been. And secondly, Mae West liked to write all of her own lines. And so that would not have worked. Um, I, I don't think a method actor <laughs> would have been right in this role at, at all. I mean, Brando has his place, but my gosh, in this film, that would have been a disaster. The the the, the, the real alternative actually signed and then backed out was Montgomery Clift. Um, yeah, I read that, and he's somebody I'm less familiar. I mean, I know roles he was in, but I'm less familiar with him. How would he have been in, you think, in, in something like this? Well, you know, he would have been a better age. You know, when they say a young man floating in the pool, Holden was 38 at the time, and they did their best. It was interesting. The makeup, they did their best to make Holden look younger and um, uh, to make her look older. Because there's actually only 12 years between them. She was 50 when the film, Gloria Swanson was 50 when the film was made. So, uh, whereas Montgomery Clift would have been in his late 20s, and he was sort of the Hollywood pretty boy at the time. Uh, Holden had been the Hollywood pretty boy 10 years before in a film called, literally called Golden Boy. So he was considered a little long in the tooth for the role, and Clift took it, and then he got nervous for, there's a couple reasons supposedly why he got nervous. One was he was actually involved in a relationship with an older woman at the time, and the other thing was he wasn't sure he wanted to do that on screen. Um, one of the things that you, you we could say about Holden, if we talk about art imitating life, is he actually said when he came to Hollywood, um, he did in fact serve as a uh, as a gigolo. Hmm. Um, he said, "I was a young actor starting out in Hollywood. I used to service actresses who were older than me." Um, so that may be why he was drawn to the film. But also, his career had been in a, a bit of a slight decline since Golden Boy. He really hadn't hadn't done much to distinguish himself, and so. This really began uh, the best period of Holden's career. He went on to do other things with with uh, Billy Wilder, most notably Stalic Seventeen, for which he got an Oscar. Man, there's so many there's so many directions to go here. Let's let's talk about Max um, because we we have both the character of Max, who has um, two big reveals that happen pretty late in the movie that I wasn't prepared for, and then we have the character of Eric von Stroheim. Who is very so? Let's let's start with Max and then pivot to to, to Eric von Stroheim. Um, so I was pretty for the most part at the beginning of the movie. I was thinking, oh, Max is is the one who makes this really feel like a horror movie because he's the one who's playing the organ and you know the the sort of creepy foreign butler has just these sort of horror movie vibes and he seems to just be part of the setting. Um, but then. As the movie goes on, there is this reveal, two reveals. One, that he was her first husband and now serves as as, as her butler and kind of does everything for her. Um, and what's interesting is in the, I don't, did you read the Roger Ebert review of this? Mm-hmm. What's interesting is for him, he says it's the Max character that like, makes really makes this a love story because, because you know, Max has this kind of love for for her that we're um, and, and he says that helps us understand partially why Joe mm-hmm. can be so drawn to her as well, that there is something magnetic about her. Right. And the other thing that we have from Max is that he was once a great director and he, <laughs> he actually had discovered her and, and was one of her directors. And now he, just like she has now, her life is now sort of living 
in this house and as we see living with some illusions about her life and um and max is now resigned to basically propping up those illusions for her um you know and so so i thought that was that sort of blew my mind to to think like wow this character is so much richer than i than mm-hmm. i give him credit for and he doesn't have that many lines and scenes but those things that he reveals about himself just layers in all of this that it's like that I wasn't that I I wasn't prepared for that character to be so rich. Yeah, he and and in in some respects, to use you know current psychobabble, he's kind of a he's kind of a classic enabler, right? Um, and and he gets something out of out of the enabling. It's as though you know he wants to keep her light uh, bright so he can kind of bask in its reflected glory. But I also think what you said is really important, and that is that his devotion to her, um, in a way, helps us to I don't know, better, maybe better understand. Or at least accept the fact that Joe Gillis uh, is also kind of caught within this uh, this orbit. It's also this idea that you know once you know once once you're kind of captured by Hollywood, you really can't let go of it. Which is also what Joe Gillis is going through, right? He really doesn't want to go back to Ohio and, and uh, work on a newspaper, and he really wants to make it. So it's like people will hold on to this Hollywood dream uh, at almost any expense, even at the expense of um, kind of. Of debasing themselves. I mean, if you if you think about it, the, I mean, the butler role, right? That is the classic expression of a kind of self abnegation in order to serve the uh, in order to serve the other. Uh, and both and 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 Joe and Gillis has such um, mixed feelings about that, almost self loathing about what he's doing. Whereas Max is almost more purity about what Max is doing. It's like you know, he's not he doesn't feel he he, he doesn't feel debased by it. He feels it actually ennobled by it in some respects. Yeah, it's almost like, I mean, so you where they have this line. Um, it's one of the one of the, the. It's a setup to one of the famous lines when when he when Joe says, "Oh, you were once you were once really big," um, and he's saying that almost like almost like an insult. Oh, and yeah. Max and Max would say she was once really big as praise. Like it's like like you don't understand how big she was. Like that would be his his way of saying that same line. But for Joe, it's like. Yeah, you used to be somebody, and he's like, no, no, she used to be somebody. She used to be this big, you know, this big thing. So, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I found that character interesting. Can you talk a little bit about Eric von Stroheim? Because this is the part where reality and and fiction blending. Yeah. I, yeah. But I also have to before I do that, Sam, I have to say, he, yeah, he says Madame was the greatest star of all. Um, actually, at the height of her career, um, Gloria Swanson was pulling down, uh, in the 1920s, was pulling down a million dollars a year. Wow. Which is in about 1920 money. Yeah, it's like 11, 12 million today. And there was very little income tax. So it was almost all take home. And she spent today's equivalent of almost $100,000 a year on clothes. So she really was a woman of means. Yeah, so Eric von Stroheim, um, you know, it's funny you ask about him because we just did a crazy German director a couple of weeks ago with Werner Herzog, uh, and I don't know what it is about the Germans, but uh, von Stroheim was also kind of a kind of a maniac, um, and, and he started out as an actor, but then he ended up directing, and probably the most notorious or significant film that he made is a nine to ten hour film called Greed, um, which I think is being referred to. I haven't seen this in any articles, but I think it's what's going on is that huge script that she's produced, 
um, I think is a reference to the continuity script for Greed, which was 330 pages. Hmm. Um, Greed has not, you know, a lot of that footage hasn't survived. There is a version of the film that's been put together, but originally it was nine, 10 hours. And that was sort of in the same way that, you know, Orson Welles developed this reputation as being unreliable. That sort of helped contribute to von Stroheim's reputation as being kind of unreliable. And one of the last films that he did was the film that is projected, uh, as you already referred to, Queen Kelly. Now, now that's an interesting film because um, it was actually produced by Gloria Swanson's own production company, which was underwritten by uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, the great Kennedy patriarch. They were actually in the middle of an affair at the time. Kennedy, by the way, helped form RKO Studios, which made Citizen Kane. Anyway, um, the film took a took a turn that uh, Swanson objected to. Uh, it was changing its setting from Europe to Africa, and she felt that it was uh, not something that she wanted to act in. So she she walked off the set, uh, and then the film production got shut down. So a version of the film was finished with another director and uh, has never been released in the US, actually. So it's really interesting, because essentially Queen Kelly is kind of the film that ended von Hosoheim's career as a director, and yet it was he who suggested that that's what they put up on the uh, on the screen. So that's one more layer to what we were talking about before, right? Not, not, not only was he actually her director, but they actually show the film in which he last directed her. Um, anyway, it, it's amazing to me that, you know, just a little over 20 years later, they actually have enough ironic distance on themselves unlike the characters they play right that they're able to actually pull this pull this off right and and from what i've heard they didn't really have any contact between those two points that she says right. that really the next time she saw him was on the set of um was on the set of sunset boulevard so so there was it felt like there was a rift there but but yeah uh, so that sort of came came back to the. Let's talk about Gloria Swanson because I feel like we've talked a lot about this movie without talking about the, you know, the gravitational center of the movie. Um, yeah. It's an amazing performance, and I would say anybody who watched this movie, if this is your only context for her, a you should you should like. I watched some clips, some silent film clips of her, looked at photos of her, like in her heyday. Um, but also watch interviews with her because I, or or even listen to interviews with her. Because I assumed she just kind of was a version of Norma Desmond. This is not at all who she sounds like, or like this is a part she is playing. Where so, but because so much is people playing either literally themselves or kind of versions of themselves, I think in my head I just assumed Norma Desmond, Gloria Swanson were very very similar, but um, but not at all, not at all the case. Um, do you have thoughts either on Swanson? Um, outside of this film, and Swanson inside of this film, like her her performance in this film. Well, you know, out, outside of the film, um, first of all, in, in terms of the level of her celebrity, I already alluded to how much money she made, but she she really was huge. So uh, in, in 1925, um, she and her husband uh, took a, a train ride across the U.S., and as they went through this ride, they, they would pass through these towns, and they would let school out. So fans could come and throw flowers. Uh, when she got to Hollywood uh, on the end of this trip, there were two brass bands, uh, policemen on horsebacks, uh, red carpet 10 yards wide. All the great stars of the day were there to greet her, uh, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, Mae West, et cetera. Um, so she really was uh, huge. But I would also say that um, she didn't have 
you know, Sunset, she says she hated the idea of a, a comeback or of a return, a comeback, it's a return. But she wasn't actually particularly successful in speaking parts after after Sunset Boulevard. So in a sense, there is a there is an element. I mean, she obviously wasn't living the kind of um, uh, hermit life as she wasn't forgotten the way Norma Desmond is. But she also didn't really manage to make much of a uh, gain much of a foothold in talkies either. So she she kept trying, but nothing really sparked for her. Well, it's interesting. The story you talked about with that 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 train trip and people coming to like it makes me think of the line in the movie about how she's waving at a parade that passed by twenty years ago or something. It's like wow, that a line like that hits a little harder with a story like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she really you know she's not. Yeah, that's the whole point. She's not fantasizing. You know, when she talks about how big she was, she's not fantasizing. Um, although I will mention that Anna Q. Nilsson in the uh, in the waxwork scene, uh, she actually set the record for I think the greatest number of fan letters. I think she got at one point thirty thousand fan letters a year. Hmm. So she's also pretty big. I found that the the Norma Joe relationship so interesting too, um, especially as they would kind of go out into the world and um, the way that you know, in some ways she treated him like a child, you know, where she was like in the way you would talk with a child about like what you're wearing and how, what you're wearing is not right. And we're going to go do this. And when they went shopping, it was a lot like a mother and a child. Right. Which also made me think about that, that dead chimp at the beginning of the, uh, the movie. And it's like, what was, I would watch that movie of like, like what was the life of that chimp? Like, and like, like in some ways is he replacing the chimp like that, that that's gone now. So she needs something new to, to like lavish attention on so they will lavish attention back or th- like I just found that I mean so it is interesting too that that you know he maybe is just replacing a chimp you know in her life to a certain degree which which is you know they don't make a big deal about but that's I, I just found yeah. that very interesting yeah but, but based on comments by Billy Wilder I, I think you can run pretty far in that direction in terms of uh Joe Joe replacing the chimp <laughs> yes um, I will say the other scene that surprised me in this movie that I didn't see coming and I loved was the whole movie builds to the trip to Paramount. And you know, DeMille has never contacted her. You know that she's gotten these calls, but it's just like, like you kind of trust Joe that it's like the script is awful and, you know, these types of things. And they go to Paramount. And because of the sort of, horror movie vibes that run through the beginning of this movie i expected the trip to paramount to be so disastrous so when they get stopped at the gate and they're not going to let them in and like oh this is so it's just very sad and you feel like well the movies prepared you for this to be sad and then it turns and then all of a sudden the guy recognizes oh miss desmond and they and it's just like all this attention is lavished on her and you expect demille to be like dismissive of her and he's not he's very warm to her and like so then it almost prepared me like maybe maybe really joe hasn't been telling the truth and maybe she is going to be this like 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 it gives you this it gives you a little bit of her hope you know even though you know it's not real (laughs) you know and then you find out about the car but i thought that was so brilliantly done because i think i'm used to that only being a disaster Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and instead, I mean, there is the degree to which it's patronizing of her, um, but there is there is this like like the way nobody's telling those people to be drawn to her when like the spotlight comes to her sitting yeah. in the chair, and yeah, like I, that was it was actually it was actually a very lovely scene um, it because 
and it yeah. really, I mean, DeMille plays DeMille so well. I mean, I, I, I think that's why that scene works. I mean, it's a very nuanced performance by DeMille. Um, and, and, and there's, 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 a, you know, there's genuine affection for her, but there's also, you know, DeMille knows that this can't be done. I mean, he, and, and so he's got to also kind of pull off that, um, letting her down, you know, and, and, and trying not to raise her false hopes. And, and of course you, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of, the, of, of, uh, of our conversation, Sam, that, you know, this is a film that's kind of passed into popular culture if you've never ever seen it so right the line that most people will know is mr demille i'm ready for my close-up now um and so it's just i just think you're right that scene especially in a film that's so bitter in other respects that seems that scene achieves a kind of sweetness and even though she's at her narcissistic best um with literally the spotlight is on her um i think you end up with a real kind of um sorrow uh, for her, uh, absolutely. You feel her. You really do feel the the pain that that she feels. Right, because if there is if there is going to be a return, the return is not going to be this Salome movie. This trip to yeah. Paramount is the return, and it's yeah. like it's like enjoy it because because then there's the moment where Demille comes back in and he's like, get that light where it's supposed to be, and it's yeah. like the illusion is broken, and it's like okay, here's where it is. Um, yeah, I I, I that that I, I really love that. And then, um. Another thing that that I found that that I liked, and this is showing that things aren't um, things that seem to me to be like contemporary are are more timeless. Is um, just almost like the TMZ nature of the end of that movie, right? You have this murder, and then all of a sudden, there's just all these cameras and reporters in the house, and and she's because she's snapped to a certain degree at the end. If she hadn't snapped already, and it's like. Um, embracing all of the it's like it, that was such a, it's such an interesting ending and it's the kind of thing where if you if that ending didn't exist and you made a movie with that kind of ending today people would be like oh what a great depiction of like um of tmz culture or like mm -hmm. like internet culture of people like wanting to be famous for it like like it, it actually would work really well and i'm thinking but this is 70 years ago and it works really well i thought that was brilliant yeah well you know what, what i also love about the ending is that you know she has she's well you, the cmc reference is really apt sam because she's collapsed the distinction between reality and fiction right she as far as she's concerned if the cameras are rolling then it's a movie and of course, these are uh, these are these are cameras for a, new, a newsreel. Uh, so it's it's interesting to me that the next film Wilder makes is Ace in the Hole, which is an expose of journalism. Hmm. So and, and and actually, what happens in Ace in the Hole is kind of it's sort of a mirror image of what's happening then at Sunset Boulevard because you have a report a corrupt reporter played by Kirk Douglas taking a real life situation and manipulating it into a media story. Um, so Wilder, that's kind of a theme. I think Wilder is really interested in that idea between how does the camera transform reality into fiction or fiction into reality? Wow. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about with this movie? Well, I just, I, I think I, a couple, well, first of all, you know, which, uh, it's interesting to note that the reception of the movie was very positive by and large. The movie got 11 Academy Award nominations and won three. Interestingly enough, it lost out a Best Picture to All About Eve, which is also another film about actors and acting and climbing the ladder. But 
uh, at the ho at the first Hollywood screening of 300 kind of Hollywood insiders, everybody loved the film. They gave it a standing ovation, except Louis B. Mayer, who uh, who <laughs> who denounced uh, Wilder as as a, he said, "You bastard! Uh, you followed your own nest." And so, one of the things that I think the film is about is it's not just about a critique of Hollywood, but I think it also is about the potentially destructive power of imagination um, and, and how imagination can bring you into illusion and, and it, it sets you up for wanting these goals that when you get them, they actually end up in a sense destroying you. So, you know, Norma wants to come back and she ends up, I don't know, you know, implication is maybe she's just descended into madness. Um, Joe wants a pool. Uh, he gets a, he gets a pool at the end. Um, so you know Hollywood, you know, famously is the dream factory. But I think that you know what Wilder is saying fairly obviously, it's also the nightmare factory, which is why I think it's got this horror film vibe. You know, sometimes the only thing worse than not getting what you want is actually getting what you want, and I think that's one of the things the film suggests. Yeah, I gotta say I loved this. I I I think. In the same way, I, I didn't I didn't realize that I didn't know what um, Singing in the Rain was about. I think I didn't know what this was about either. I, I kind of did, but I think I think I'm projecting part of all about Eve on this too. <laughs> like, like I was like, man, I thought there was a scene where there was you know this younger actress who was trying. That's all about Eve, right? Yeah. yeah. Like young, okay, I think yeah. I was thinking that was this movie too. Um, and again, this movie was so much better than I thought. But that doesn't even give her credit because that makes it sound like. Like it's good. Like I have to couch how good I thought it was. This movie is just with no, no, um, no couching. This is just a great, great movie. This is a movie I will watch. Um, I think repeatedly, I think I, I really love this. One of the projects I started to do this weekend, I know we talk about, um, how lists are silly, but this is our, I think our 42nd movie. So I said, you know, I should sit down and try to kind of rank them. Not, what I think is the best movie, but like the experience of watching it in this setting, you know, the conversation and the movie and, and things like that. And um, I, I, I'm never, I'm not going to put things on the list until we have our conversation. And this is one every minute that passes. It's like, wow, that goes, a, it gets a little bit higher. A little, like this is, this one was truly, truly exceptional. Yeah. So thank there's, you. There's, yeah. There's so much going on. I think you're right. This is one it's in my category of Dr. Strange love that I could, yeah, I can watch it over and over. Wow. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, it seems to me, Sam, that after circling around silent films, we ought to watch a silent film. So, and this is, uh, this is a silent film actually made after the advent of the talkies, but I think we should watch Charlie Chaplin's City Lights. Um, I think it's one of the greatest of the, of the silent films. And Chaplin famously resisted sound as long as he could. I mean, even in 1934 with Modern Times, he was still making a silent film. But I think City Lights, some people think was Chaplin's best, but I think if we're going to do a silent film, that's what we ought to do. Oh, I'm but so excited. On City Lights. Because I've seen Modern Times. Um, I think I saw that in college. Uh, I was actually yesterday just going through the AFI list, marking off the things that I've seen. And this, this uh, podcast has helped me get a bunch of things on that list that I hadn't seen. And I, and I, I remember actually looking at city lights and saying, have I seen that? And I said, no, I've seen modern times, which is also on the list, but, but I'm really excited to, um, I'm really excited to watch, uh, to watch a silent film and to watch a Chaplin film um, in particular, because I don't have a lot of experience with that. I also don't know. 
um, that I exactly know how to watch a movie like this. Do you have any advice going into this to say like how to best um, how to best watch a silent film, or do you just watch it? Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I guess one thing I would say, maybe the fairly obvious thing is that uh, you know we're moving in the realm of a different acting style. Um, and so just kind of keep that in mind. We talked a little bit about that when we watched um, uh, Rashomon, but yeah, the acting style is a little bit different. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just just watch it and uh, and enjoy it. So I, the other the other reason I felt we had to do Chaplin was Gloria Swanson did a pretty good Charlie Chaplin uh, in in Sunset Boulevard. So I feel we should go back to the original Little Tramp. I loved. Uh, let's talk about that scene really quick too, because I loved that because up until that point, you only see her as this as Norma Desmond, this, the weird sort of vampire character. And then all of the sudden she's, she does two different performances in that, in that little scene. And it's, and, and Ebert mentions this too. It's like, you get to that point and you realize, Oh, this is part of why she's so magnetic. And she really is a star. And she really like, yeah, I, I just thought, man, there that like when Max reveals those things about himself and you're like, all I needed was that little bit to realize how much richer this character is seeing those two performances made me realize whole other levels of like, Oh, she is not just, I was once this beautiful person that people put up on screen, but it's like, Oh, she's actually like, like a very, very talented person as well. And we're just seeing little pieces of it. Yeah. So, and she, she really did start a career in Max Senate films. So the Max Senate bathing beauty thing, which she does in her, her first, uh, her first performance that, that again, that's very, that's very accurate, but it also, it also is a reminder too, of how economical the film is. I mean, how much, he, how much Wilder communicates with just those short little scenes, very, you know, very deliberately chosen and very, very concise. Right. Cause she, she, she seems at that point, like, Oh, this might be fun to hang out with her. Yeah. Yeah. And she seems to be having a good time. I mean, it's like, and I guess what you realize is she actually most comes alive when she's performing, you know, when she, and, and so, so in a sense you think, well, it's not, it's not unreasonable for her to want to perform again because that's really when she is most herself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Barrett, thank you so much for recommending this film. Uh, this one is, is really, really high up on the list. Uh, if for some reason you listen to this podcast and haven't seen it, I don't know why you'd get this far, but you, you have to go see it today. It's spectacular. Uh, it was, it was so good. Um, so thank you for recommending that. If you want to look at the other episodes that we've done, you can go to videostorepodcast.wordpress.com. Um, everything's listed there. You can you can see everything. You can get to all the episodes. You can sort it out by um, by decade. You can give us an email, uh, channel3900 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts about, uh, about the show, your thoughts about movies that we've talked about, movies that you think we should talk about. Um, please, uh, please give us an email and we will be back next week to talk about city lights in the video store. Mm-hmm.